Welcome back to another episode of Star Wars Untold Stories, where your pals at Entertainment Weekly dig deep into the crevices of the galaxy far, far away. What a weird way to start this episode, but frankly, this is going to be a weird episode because we're talking about a extraordinarily fan-service-heavy episode of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian before going into a defense, question mark, of Revenge of the Sith, which I think we can all agree is definitely the best of the prequels, but is it better than other Star Wars movies. Uh, who better to talk about that than my pal EW's James Hibbard, editor-at-large and our man in the galaxy far, far away. James, how's it going? Doing well. Uh, also joining us this week is Chancellor Agard, a person who I know has opinions about the prequels, and I've been very excited to talk to him, him about that all week. Very uh, silly ones. Very, very silly ones, but also very, very profound ones. Chance, <laughs> thanks for joining us. I'm Darren Franich, uh, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I, I, I should have said that, but I didn't. Guys, let's get into episode five of The Mandalorian. The title of it is The Gunslinger. There was indeed some gunslinging. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. We've been a couple of Tatooine-style planets this season so far, uh, so why not just pull the ripcord and go to Tatooine itself seemed to be the thinking behind this one. Uh, James, we were texting about this episode a little bit, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on episode five. Well, I, you know, I still can still feel the wind in my face from all the fan service. Uh, so many fans, so much service blowing right at you. But, you know, I, I'm such a Star Wars fan that that actually worked on me. You know, I loved, you know, seeing that wretched hive of scum and villainy again. Uh, and the Cantina Bar and Tuscan Raiders and Dewbacks and speeder bikes. I mean, yes, at some certain point, like the dialogue, it's like a, how many more references can you drop to literally everything we know about Tatooine? But uh, but I I kind of dug it. I mean, I think there are some flaws in the episode, as as I'm sure that that uh, that that you have from from uh, from from your text. But uh, but overall, um, I liked it better than being on the sort of um, sad farming planet. Yes, uh, I, I think last week we said, uh, last week we were kind of stretching for comparison points for what we thought um, uh, the episode was like. I said Hercules' uh, legendary journey. Um, but, you know, to me that was at least like an okay episode of Hercules' the legendary journey. This was like, for me, a deeply unsatisfying like sub-quest in an open world video game. Um, I think I texted you actually about 10 minutes into the episode, uh, Quote, I think I hate this show. I wasn't going to out you, so, but yes, that's exactly what you said. In, in fairness, in fairness, though, that was right after the appearance of the kind of uh, boy band looking new bounty hunter uh, who immediately became my least favorite character on the show. Uh, I will say the episode did take some turns from there. Uh, I still generally was not so in favor of it. So, Chance, James is kind of in the like camp. I'm in the strong dislike camp. Where do you fall oh, on the, on the I spectrum? I am definitely in the dislike camp. Uh, Join me in the dark side. Uh, as someone who was like, I like Star Wars, you know, I like it. I like it enough. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a super fan, and I think the show in general has just been like, I don't know. I'm just like, I still don't get why it exists yet. Yeah. And this episode just felt like another episode was like, why? Wh what are we doing here? Like, what's the like? All the fan service I got, but all at the same time, it's like I don't like being back at Tatooine. Is just sort of like, okay. 
Well, uh, and, and here's kind of my my sort of larger complaint. I think attached to the Tatooine thing is okay. So we go back to the Mos Eisley Cantina, and you know, I, I, as I've kind of dug deeper into the movies, I really have come to feel that the Mos Eisley Cantina scene in the first movie might be my favorite scene in any of the movies. Period, which is obviously pretty high praise, given that uh, you know th- there are there are good scenes in a lot of these movies, uh, to to say the least. Um, but even like. It didn't seem that scummy or villainous anymore in Moss Eisley. Uh, it actually seemed like a like a pretty nice place where you know the the, the kind of funny lady who runs uh, the, the local you know illegal spaceport area like is cool babysitting for a while. I guess that's that's a little bit of my larger complaint. I think James it's toned down. Like, well, it's toned down, and, and you know to your point, kind of James. You know, again, I, I we've discussed our love of kind of the '90s Star Wars video games, and like this for me did kind of call out up the uh, level in Shadows of the Empire where you're just kind of driving your speeder bike around. And I think I think jumping over multiple Sarlacc pits, the canon was, was a little hazy. Um, but I, I, so I, I do appreciate that aspect of it. But for me, um, yeah, it, it was this sort of G-ratedness of it that came to the fore a little bit more. But, but, but how did you feel about, because I guess the core of the episode was the kind of like sniper showdown, you know, bounty hunters turning on each other thing. Did, did, did that kind of work on you? Well, I, I... I have to go back to 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 the the auto mechanic first, or the ship mechanic, because you know there was a moment near the beginning where I was worried that the whole episode would be this Amy Sedaris adventures and babysitting storyline of her just watching Baby Yoda. That that basically Baby Yoda is going to take over the show, just like like it's taken over social media. Um, I I loved being back in the cantina bar. I think the reason why it wasn't so scum and and villainous as before. I mean, you know, you know, it seems like he went there like during. A- <laughs> Hour, you know, but I, the real reason is is because you know is because is because of the budget. You know, they they, they can't afford to stock a whole bar with, 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 with exotic aliens. This show costs more than the no, show has no, no extras. This, sh- this show costs more than like than like the, the, the original Star Wars movie did at times. You, you're telling me they couldn't afford extras? Yeah, but you can't do it the way the original Star Wars movie did. But, you know, and sort of have it look you know okay, remotely I, contemporary. So you know, I I, I do wonder if the droid at the bar is the same D9D from Jabba's palace and he was fired after letting in 3PO and R2D2 and now has to work as a bartender. I also uh, like that Tatooine has, has the bar has progressed as it went from we don't serve their kind here talking about droids to a droid like working at the bar which brings up my other thing I really liked and that is the, the sort of redemption of the reputation of the Tusken Raiders a bit you know they've always you know it, because it, the way they framed it this time is like oh no these aren't just like these, you know, horrible creatures. They're they're actually sort of like like the Native Americans of of uh, Tatooine, which actually now is, 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 that's almost a little bit of a subversive thing to do well, because it kind of makes the way they were depicted in the earlier movies seem well, like kind of horrible. Uh, I, I got a lot of thoughts on that, but Chance, you had some thoughts that uh, you wanted to share. Well, first. I think the thing about the budget, which is sort of interesting, which I actually I thought about this watching when I watched last week's episode, how like. You could tell there's a lot of money in this show, but it, where they're using it is very odd. Like all the sets and all the locations look expensive, but feel kind of like hollow yeah. and just like, I don't know, like, especially like when he's like in the ship. But even on, but in this episode too, like Tatooine is like, we're on Tatooine, it still just feels like, I don't know, it feels like he's walking around a set and not like a real, like yeah, place it always feels a little underpopulated. Um, I, I, I and but I will say to give the show some credit. And again, I hated this episode. Um, I, I did, I, I did kind of think that, like, <laughs> you know. 
there is this weird feeling each week as we get to the kind of, oh, this is a 35-minute episode. That's kind of been the general strike zone so far. And 35 minutes is kind of a weird length of time where, um, you know, w when they got out to where they actually were chasing down their bounty, um, and you realized, oh, it's kind of like it's it's kind of like a Hurt Locker sniper duel now. Like, or that's kind of what we're on. Like, I was kind of like, okay, that's a cool episode, actually, like unto itself, you know, where you, you kind of imagine it'll be okay, like, um, the sniper's over here, and they're over here. I actually thought they were gonna do the reveal where uh, the Mandalorian was sleeping. I totally thought it was gonna be that he got out of his armor and stuck around, and his, the armor was empty. Um, but of course, he never takes the armor <laughs> off, so that didn't work out. Um, but then, with the budget they have, it's kind of like, no, we're gonna jump right into this super fast, zoomy, um, you know, we need to distract the sniper action sequence. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, it's, it's weird, as Chance was saying, to see what they're spending money on and what they're not necessarily spending money on. Where do we stand on uh, the uh, dude with an earring? Uh, because I have to say, I have to say, I was ready <laughs> to totally despise him, but I did kind of like how he ultimately kind of became this example of like, like, like the wannabe bounty hunter who's like so terrible that he just like winds up kind of basically trying to kill everyone, and then you know, I, I, I thought that was kind of a somewhat more interesting arc, certainly than as you were saying, James, like, like, mm -hmm. like last oh. week's like last week's like we're oh, all farmers and we all love each other thing. This was a little, I, I, thought, I thought a little sharper in some ways. Yeah, for for most of the episode, he felt like a, a like a like a Disney yeah. Channel character from like an after school show, kind of dropped into the Mandalorian, completely with a like earring, and and then but he had what might have been my favorite shot in the whole show so far. You know, the twin suns sunrise, a counter to the famous twin suns you know sunset in A New Hope, and that profile shot where he suddenly uh, uh, kill, kills a Fennec is, yeah. is 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 that how you pronounce the character's name? And and so and that. I was I didn't expect that and and it was also a really cool shot so I yeah I, I quite I assume like that, that was part. kind of the surprise that was of a, yeah. the episode yeah. right yeah which like um, and and obviously I mean um, you know to think about surprises uh, let's come out a little bit here because the end of the episode was I think kind of the first big maybe mystery of the show mm -hmm. so far beyond the existence of baby Yoda um, we saw a mysterious figure walking through the desert uh, going to uh, Fennec's corpse, apparently, which I'm guessing is not a corpse, because why would you why, mm -hmm. why would you cast Probably her not. for a, for a, a, a seemingly quite sh short run um, a, a role? Um, James, who is that person? Well, I mean, I mean, it would be awesome if it was Boba Fett because that, it was Tatooine was the last place we saw <laughs> Boba Fett, and uh, you know, so maybe it's not just a random you know you know fan service choice that they Chance, ended up at Tatooine. Who was that person? I had no I had no guesses until that, and now the thought of a Mandalorian versus Mandalorian I, that sounds. Good news, you're both wrong. Uh, uh, oh. That is the long lost Darth Plagueis, uh, who of course, uh, of course we'll be talking about so much more in Revenge of the Sith, because who better to bring uh, someone back to life than that? Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. one thing I will just kind of say to listeners who love, love, love The Mandalorian and each week wonder why we are ragging on it so much, um, I, I did kind of notice this was another episode written and directed by Dave Filoni, um, who of course was a, a huge kind of 
uh, creative mind behind The Mandalorian. And as near as I can tell, he doesn't seem to have any writing or directing credits in the final three episodes. And of course, uh, one of the directing credits is Taika Waititi, who is uh, known to be a, a pretty good filmmaker. So I do wonder if there may be some new directions coming in these last three episodes. But I say that, James, I've said that each week. And as you like to say, we still have not seen certain major, major, major actors who we know are involved in the show. <laughs> the, the lack of John Carlo Esposito so far has has been my my biggest Mando uh, disappointment. Yeah, and, and I I was like disappointed with that with the uh, because, I mean we had that twist with uh, Toro Calican as as the character uh, is named the boy band guy. Um, I was disappointed that it ended with a scene that we've seen a million times. It's like villain with a gun to the head of a hostage and a, and a standoff, and which correct me if I'm wrong, but that didn't even really necessarily need to happen, right? He could have just taken his prize and yeah. and taken off and not just stood there waiting around to be killed by someone he knew was far better. Yeah, he kind of wanted to be a little bit of the bad guy in the long ago uh, parody of 24 that South Park did, where like, <laughs> like he like he's he's literally dying and he says like, whatever, I could die as long as I get my money. Like it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, the, the 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 haziness with which he went from I just want to join the guild to um, okay, now I want to be a legend to you know, it, it, it was sort of like motivation override. Um, which also brings me to a larger question that I have. Um, so the tracking fobs. Yes. Um, in the first episode, I was kind of under the impression, and you guys please correct me, that the fobs were specifically something that was tracking baby Yoda, that there was some, you know, something attached to him. I don't want to say midichlorians, but some way that they could, they could be tracking him. Now it seems as if any bounty has a tracking fob attached to them that kind of takes you to their zone. Am I the... That seemed pre pre pretty apparent in the first episode exactly. that yeah. Bounty has, has a tracking fob, but but we did. We, we, it's, it's unclear what exactly, exactly. about the that, person that's that tracking. That was my question, actually, after last week's episode when that uh, bounty hunter showed up at the nice nice village looking for yet. It's like, how are uh, my question was going to be, how are what do these fobs do? How do they track them? Like. It's a red flashing light, isn't that all you need to know? And it beeps, so it makes it really easy to sneak up on people that you're trying to capture. <laughs> well, 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 it, it just seems to me as if, if you want to talk a show about a show that's really kind of cheat coding itself, um, and you know, I play a lot of video games, I like a lot of video games, in video games where you're playing a bounty hunter type and someone says like, go find this person, they're in this circle on the map, you know, that's kind of acceptable. Um, but it is, it's weird to me that, you know, in this universe, the idea of bounty hunting is basically just kind of like the person's over there. You know, there's not a lot of hunting involved in the in the, in the uh, bounty hunting part of the process. I just assume it's some sort of space GPS that we don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to me, this is a little bit like the whole Rogue One thing where I'm just kind of like, oh, we're edging into what is the actual technology of the Star Wars universe and it seems to involve satellites and DNA and I'm not quite sure uh, what that all means. James, uh, any final thoughts on this week's episode of The Mandalorian? Uh, I guess just one other thing is I feel like Mando is destined to be broke because he's constantly giving away these unspecified bags of metal money to anyone he comes across. <laughs> you know, guys, the Mandalorian, he's a nice guy. That's that's the sort of like, I, you know, James, I, I recall you saying this way back in the first episode, but it's very weird to see a show that like, 
again, I don't pretend to understand what The Mandalorian is doing at all, frankly, but to see a show where like there's kind of all the machinery there for like this hard-boiled loner is going to learn to be a better person, but it's kind of like, nah, he's already a pretty good person. Yeah. Like, there's not a whole, there's not a big learning process involved necessarily. Unclear what his arc is at this point. Unclear what his arc is, but he, he will take that helmet off <laughs> at, at some point. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Guys, let's talk prequels here. Uh, technically, I guess we have been, because The Mandalorian is sort of a prequel in in some ways. Uh, prequel, sequel, interquel, who knows. Um, but uh, in the lead up to Rise of Skywalker, which comes out in a couple of weeks, I've certainly been doing a deep dive into all Star Wars history, including the Star Wars prequels. Uh, now, Chance. Yes. You and I have had some talks before about prequels in general, but Revenge of the Sith, I think that's kind of the movie that for me, that's like the Schrodinger's cat of the prequels, where I think you kind of know where everyone stands in episode one and episode two, mm -hmm. but three is a little bit of a wild card. Uh, what was your initial experience of seeing Revenge of the Sith, and where does it kind of stand for you now? Well, it was the first Star Wars movie I ever saw. <laughs> I, oh, wow. uh, I, could, I remember, I have a vivid memory, we were driving, I guess I was in eighth grade, we were driving back, uh, I was doing this opera in DC, and we were driving back, and we stopped at CVS, it's like 10 p.m. at night, and like, we're like in CVS and they have the DVD and I was like, hey, I want this. <laughs> Why? <laughs> this looks cool. And so I got it, watched it, and then fell in love with Star Wars and then went on like, became like a Star Wars fanatic for that like year. Um, and then fell off of Star Wars until the I still <laughs> What was it like experiencing that story having not seen anything else? I, it was weird because I think like, because like, Star Wars is such a huge part of like pop culture. like you know certain stuff but like at that point you're like oh the little green guy is yoda uh apart from that i knew nothing and then I, like i was surprised about anakin becoming darth vader God, that fascinating uh, even though like even like even, like even like i knew that like darth vader was luke skywalker's father i just didn't put that together i don't think like, and then so like watching that i was like oh this is amazing i, uh, I always think this is so interesting because you know every single person i, I know obviously mm -hmm. and and everyone of my generation you know one kind of complaint you would have about the prequels is like well we just know where it's all going there's not a whole lot of like you know this this is not like a better call Saul situation mm -hmm. where it's like oh there's surprises about how they got there like it is kind of what you expected but you remember watching revenge of the Sith, like so, there was a point around Act One where you were like, Anakin Skywalker seems like a pretty okay guy. Yeah, it's <laughs> so interesting. It's, uh, it's so interesting. Yeah, I was like very much into it, the movie. Like, I think, and even now when I've actually rewatched it like twice in this past week because I keep falling asleep. But um, <laughs> towards the end, but it's like. Uh, 
I think if you don't think about it, the movie you just let the movie just like wash over you. It's like still a fun ride. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and certainly like in visual terms, I, I think it's kind of the most distinctive from you know we're kind of in an era now where the palette they're pulling from is very much the original trilogy, mm -hmm. and Revenge of the Sith for the most part I think is so opposite Andy of that. Yeah. Like it's really doing its own thing. Um, James, I, I uh, will say I feel like it makes them because I remember I think it was you in your column on uh, Phantom Menace we're talking about how that the movie or a lot of people come into this movie that movie's like just a bunch of like intergalactic politics that are very very boring I feel like this movie sort of it's half that and then half just like it's definitely stupid still, acting. It's like a weird mix. It's definitely still the kind of parliamentary stuff, which is interesting. Uh, James, w what are your memories of seeing Sith for the first time? Uh, and I, I, I assume it's going to be slightly different from Chance's experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, guys, this is where the fun begins, right? <laughs> which, 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 which is which is one of my which is one of those lines that that you know the very beginning that's one of those classic prequel lines that you're just like you know and you think about how actors do multiple takes of a line and, and every time Hayden Christensen says that line in the beginning I'm just like wow if that was the best take of that line <laughs> what was so, the worst take it's of that so line? interesting because even I mean he, he is someone who is an, an English first language speaker and even the way that he says it <laughs> sounds like it is being poorly. <laughs> Translated. It's it's so fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, but, my, yeah. my words don't sound right. When my, you... my favorite line is, "Wait a second, we're smarter than this." Says yeah. Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, uh, so so yes, this yeah. is where the fun begins, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to me, uh, the reason Sith works well. Um, is that it's the only prequels film that really has major characters we care about in conflict with each other, which is a basic component of drama that, that mm -hmm. the other ones lack. I mean, Sith has this uh, dramatic sp spine of, of the fall of Anakin Skywalker, yeah. and every time the movie is focused on that spine, it works, and we kind of lean into it. Mm -hmm. And then other times, like in the opening sequence or Obi-Wan riding a giant lizard, it works less well. Uh, so, so, so to me, it, it works because it, it's, it's the only one that has that strong Structure that, that basic you know storytelling structure of of characters in conflict. Yeah. I mean, I also going off that too. I think even rewatching it now, it, it reminded me most of like a season finale where like we were watching it and like no matter like, I feel like even TV like season finales are pretty easy in the sense that like if you've done like a basic just like a fine job of your season like by like by the, like by the time you get to your finale, it's like. That'll that just has to be good because like you're paying off whatever you've been doing, right. no matter how bad or good it is. And I think here too, it's like you feel the weight of that. So it's like this movie was. It's like if we feel like there's stuff happening. Whereas right. like Phantom Menace or like and I I don't remember talking about that well, but like Phantom Menace is just like I don't know what's going on. There's nothing here, and I feel like with uh as like with with that spine of with like Anakin's fall, it does feel like up there's yeah. like momentum and wait to it a bit. I think. I, I think you're right. And even, I would say to me, it's comparable to a season finale. Um, I don't know. I, I guess, like, I think of something like the season two finale of Fringe, where, you know, you have a show that, like, in one way or another, it's been kind of burying the story for a mm. long time. Or, you know, certainly, in the case of the prequels, you know, just not much seemed to be happening in terms of the vibrant character dynamics so much in the first two. And so now you get to the finale, and it's like, oh, we're going to kind of fit in all of that, like, in one big 
chunk. And so I think yeah, it does I, have, it, it has that kind of power to it. And even in the kind of Anakin, Palpatine, um, you know, I don't think Hayden Christensen is bringing too much to the table, but Ian McDiarmid is bringing a oh. lot to their kind of dynamic. And I and I, I find that to be really kind of interesting. It's also- yeah, I, I, I texted you during my rewatch that this has my favorite scene in the prequels. And turns out J.J. Abrams' favorite scene as well, as he noted in a recent interview. And that's, as you referred to earlier, the, you know, the, the space opera scene yes. um, uh, b- b- between Palpatine and uh, and Anakin. You know, to me, this is like the one prequel scene where everything works. It's actually written well, it's directed well, it's acted well, it's suspenseful and moody and intriguing. And Ian McDermott is just chewing up that monologue. And, you know, you know it's, it's, it's just a terrific scene. And that scene is so interesting, too, because it is um, a long dialogue scene that, you know, on one hand, I think it works so much because of his performance. Um, It doesn't surprise me that J.J. Abrams likes that scene because there is this sense that for really, I think, the only time in George Lucas's filmography, dialogue is kind of telling you something without necessarily saying what it's telling you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the myth of Dark Plagueis and the idea of creating life and saving it, um, and this is not anything new, th- there is this sort of long-running fan theory that that's basically Darth Sidious, the Emperor, telling Anakin Skywalker, who happens to be uh, born of a virgin, as we discovered in Phantom Menace, like, I created you. And I mean, you know, I did some digging and there is some canonical stuff that seems to support that. It's not totally clear if that was the intention, but I just find that in general, the, the, the power of that scene is something pretty distinct, even from stuff in much, much better Star Wars movies. Like there's nothing like that scene in Empire and, and certainly nothing like that scene in the recent movies. Chance, you said you were rewatching Revenge of the Sith mm-hmm. a couple times this week. You were falling asleep a, a yes. little bit. Uh, how how does how does Chance today think of Sith compared to uh, compared to Chance who's discovering Star Wars well, for the first time? It's funny. I like that opera scene, but at the same time, I, don't know, I feel like the movie is like there's no, and I guess maybe this is what we should we shouldn't expect it from these movies, but there's like no like subtlety in the way and like the fall of Anakin. It's, it's very much just like. No, it's like every scene is like dedicated to that. There's no like, there's no like, there's no like dancing around. It's just yeah. like this is thinly veiled. Oh, he's going down the dark, dark path, you know. And well, it's because it, very- even even when he's still kind of nominally, you know, in, in an okay frame of mind, there's an early scene where you know he's talking to Padme, who of course is his wife, the mother of his mm-hmm. child, and she kind of says, sort of, you know, just kind of some fun chat between husband and wife, like maybe our government should be a little more diplomatic. And he, <laughs> and he tells her like, you sound like, like a separatist, separatist. <laughs> which is really. I mean, I, I don't know. That, that to me, that's the kind of extremity you're talking about. Where there's there's no sort of casual dialogue yeah. between those two ever, which is you know I, I think that's a failing as far as kind of etching in those characters a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, but it does give it this uh, you know really unique feel. For me, the other scene that kind of sticks out, and you know as cheesy as George Lucas's instincts could be, every now and then it could really deliver. Um, but when he's kind of making his decision to rescue Palpatine, um, there's the shot of like, he's on like he's on like the rooftop of like, I think the Jedi temple, and Padme is over in, in their penthouse, and the sun is setting over Karuskin. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about, you know, the excess of that. I, I do think that, you know, in, in terms of sheer effects terms, um, this is kind of the one movie where the digital effects don't look 
embarrassing the way they kind of do in the yeah. first two. Um, yeah. And I, and and uh, I, 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 I will just shout it really quickly. Um, just thinking about what do you want out of a Star Wars movie? Having a good secondary villain goes a long way. And General Grievous, I think, is an all-timer for me. Like that's a really interesting and weird and kind of inexplicable member of the dark side to be sort of like facing. You know, during the hour of the movie that comes before the big uh, the big Jedi. Purge. Well, yeah, I mean, James pointed this out how the the this movie like the character dynamics it's sort of weird and when I, when I was when I was watching it it did strike me as odd like how much of this movie though is devoted to like Obi-Wan and he brought and James brought this up but, like Obi-Wan off on his own with Jerome Grievous which like I don't know it just like for me I'm like this is a two-hour movie, and like two that's, that feels like padding to you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, or just like I think that's fair. It's weird. I don't know. I just it didn't. It's well, it, it's weird that that is so clearly distinct from the back half yeah. of the movie, which is really when you know, like I, I think actually Grievous dies right before um, Order sixty six yeah. goes out, and the Jedi all die. I think, like, it's almost kind of like this is the end of the regular Star Wars adventure and the beginning of the the great purge of of, of the younglings. Um, yeah, yeah. To, to, to me, General Grievous did nothing uh, nothing for me. He was another sort of of these prequel CGI paper tiger villains that uh, that come up and then get easily dispatched right um, he's like another kind so, of Dooku so, another, yeah, so yeah, yeah yeah but uh, but you're talking about that sun setting scene I think that might be one of the only maybe time that George Lucas put the camera on an actor without dialogue and just lets them act yeah in, yeah. in, in, the, in the entire prequels and then it goes into my, my second favorite uh, sequence in the prequels, and that is, um, you know, the 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 scene with with Mace Windu, Windu and and the Emperor, and no. uh, and no. which arguably, <laughs> I think that's actually the most disturbing death scene in all oh. the Star Wars films. Yeah. I was rewatching oh, it, I was like, percent. I forgot how awful this is. <laughs> this is really kind of, you know, it's hard to imagine uh, Disney now having that scene as yeah. a, exactly as it played in in because you know, I mean, it's it, it it's Samuel L. Jackson and he's being betrayed and maimed and tortured and then thrown out a window. It, it is fun. like I mean yeah I think especially we, we, like, I think we've talked about his performance a lot but Ian McDermott McDermott's yeah. performance in that moment the way that he says no is just so <laughs> creepy he's and so like good. oh I like I'm, that's the I think that's one that sticks out of my mind whenever I like think back to like re like watching it for the first time or for the first few times when I got the DVD it was like that specific moment yeah and, and you know to me I, I guess that um, you know as much as I do struggle with a lot of this movie and I, I certainly think that it, you, you, you got the right to say there's a lot of padding. We don't even need to talk about Yoda hanging out with oh. the Wookiees at all. Um, but um, there's something so interestingly dissonant that this movie can get away with when, you know, we're in this sort of universe that really by this point in the prequels, it's pretty bland and like, you know, even like, you know, poor Natalie Portman, she spends the whole movie in these just sort of like, you know, be curtained, uh, you know, rooftop scapes that just all look so kind of like, it, it simultaneously like seems expensive, but also looks so bland and, and boring. And only leaves the apartment at the end of the movie, right? Exactly, to, to oh immediately, God, right. to, to, to immediately, uh, you know, Collapse. die of a broken heart, and you know, there's there's a, there's a lot to struggle with on that front, certainly. But to to have a movie like this, which again, you know, the blandness of it all, then a scene like that where you literally have Palpatine, he's like crisping himself, mm -hmm. and the way that he screams, I just, I, I, I really want to say, what a performance. He yeah. almost sounds 
kind of like he's getting off on it a little bit. There's, there's, it's, it's such a weird like burst of pure Clive Barker Hellraiser energy. Right. Um, and and I, I think that kind of sets the table for what you're describing, James. That you know Mace Windu, who I mean, more than anything, I, I think uh, you know Jackson in these movies had just been this sort of like strong, silent, floating. You know, not really a lot to Mace Windu, unfortunately, in earlier movies, but. To just dispatch him in this way, it's, it, it, there's something really haunting about it. That for me, that's even that cuts deeper than even anything in the newer Disney movies, which have had you know bigger character deaths and have had these sort of like you know more obviously violent moments. There's something about that back and forth that I find really kind of interesting. Uh, James, so do, do you say do, does, does, does the movie kind of rank higher for you now? Or does it work more for you now uh, uh, than it did when, when you first saw it? I mean, it was it was always my favorite of, of the prequels. I just feel like I got a little bit more clarity on what I like about it this time around yeah. and also Attack of the Clones upon this rewatch also just sank even further <laughs> there's literally a scene there's only like two scenes in Attack of the Clones of, of Anakin Skywalker carrying luggage it's, it, it is just it is just I mean one day we're going to do Attack of the Clones and, 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 and we're going to have a blast but I just want to throw out another bit of Palpatine uh, my favorite line is in the opera box when he goes leave us to to the other people in the opera box and for that one those two words he slips into his cold biting emperor voice yes. and, then goes, yeah. and then goes back to his honey-tongued politician voice oh, and it's such yeah. a neat little choice in that moment that and, and I think that that performance really is I think you know really the reason that he's in um, Rise of Skywalker is probably less of a story or a plot reason than J.J. Abrams be just being really impressed with that performance and, and as, he, as, as he told us in, in an interview you know being very kind of haunted um, and scared of the Emperor when he first watched uh, Return of the Jedi as a kid and yeah. um, you know the, the other thing I want to point out is uh, that occurred to me about Revenge of the Sith is I, the story I kept thinking of and this isn't you know to put down uh, Revenge just at all, but the story I kept thinking of, and I texted this to you when watching, I think, was Pet Cemetery. Because it's a man trying to save his family by cheating death, and he makes a series of worsening decisions resulting for in doom for them all. Yeah. And it kind of has that same sense of inevitability and dread uh, to it. Totally, yeah. The, the inevitability of it, um, you know, the, the, the fact that he's not only killing his family, but, you know, d destroying the entirety of his civilization. Um, and I will just say that, you know, for as much as I think a lot of Lucas's instincts as a filmmaker by now were like almost kind of like destructive for how we think about cinema. Um, <laughs> there's something about the lava planet, and you know mm -hmm. the, the, the the fact that like you know that was kind of a vision that I think you know he and you know he, that was I believe Ralph McQuarrie had sort of you know initially kind of conceived of that, and he kind of conceived of it years and years ago, and the final kind of return to that, and the way that I mean the, the planet itself almost seems to be sort of tearing itself apart. Mm -hmm. As uh, Anakin and uh, and Obi Wan are having their battle, um, and you know, I, I think that's partially just for me. Um, you know, the, the scene that I kept thinking of actually was from uh, House of Flying Daggers when uh, the two main characters are fighting, and you know, they're, they're fighting over a lot of things that are, are, are hard to explain, and you know, they both love the same woman, yada yada. But like all around them, it sort of goes from summer to winter, just kind of like by sheer force of their uh, of, of their antagonism. 
there's something, I don't know, again, Lucas was in a lot of ways a kind of prosaic filmmaker, but there's something about just the excess of that that really kind of works for me. Um, so I, I, I don't know, this is kind of the one that I will keep returning to. I think I like it more even than maybe Return of the Jedi now, uh, just because for me, Return of the Jedi obviously has like the awesome, for, you know, the awesomeness of the Jabba the Hutt stuff and then it kind of dwindles away. And like Revenge of the Sith, which has a lot of flab in the middle, boy, that, that, that killer final lava sequence is really something to, to work towards. Am I crazy here, James? <laughs> you can tell me if I'm crazy. Uh, I don't know, I haven't put those two up uh, in my head versus each other. Uh, I have kind of uh, some mixed thoughts about Return of the Jedi too so I'd have to kind of process that a little bit I, I do like what you're saying about the lava planet I've you know it's I mean it's hard to get more dramatic right than a lava yeah. planet and uh, and so I was always really looking forward to seeing that fight um, you know I think clearly uh, uh, Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen just you know gave that fight everything mm -hmm. they got yeah. I, mean, the, yeah. I mean their choreography was terrific um, you know their whole clash uh, was really well well done you know, at the same time, there are bits and pieces in there that that, that bug me from from like the the floating on the bad CGI lava droids yeah, to some yeah. of the dialogue that George couldn't help putting in there. Like from my point of view, it's the Jedi who are evil. Just yeah, in case you're yeah. unclear of, of <laughs> my point of view as a character, and, well, and don't try it, Anakin. As you can clearly see. I have the higher ground. Yeah. It's like why? Why even, no? Don't even, you know? Where where's Erwin Kirshner to like cross those out floating, of the script? To even like even the floating CGI though is kind of interesting because Chance. I, I, I want to know what did like eighth grade Chance think about the scene where the main character of the movie kind of jumps off the screen and then Obi Wan just kind of like runs his lightsaber up <laughs> and suddenly Anakin has no limbs left. <laughs> like that. That is like truly one of the most disturbing, and again, the fact that it's so bloodless makes it kind of more disturbing in a way, because he's just sort of suddenly down there <laughs> yeah. being consumed by lava. Like. I mean, at that point, I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> like, I have no, I have, like, I'm pretty sure the thing I liked about Star Wars when I first watched was like, lightsabers, I don't know, as a kid I was always into swords, and I think that was what I loved the most. Yeah, so yeah like, of course, of That's course, like the yeah. best use of a lightsaber. Like, <laughs> he just like, like Obi-Wan, and again, it's kind of- did not see it coming either. Again, it's kind of off screen. Obi-Wan just sort of like raises up his lightsaber and suddenly it's like, there. I guess he, he has his, his uh, cyborg hand still, but there's, there is a one-limbed like torso that's just falling down the side just of the Just writhing and then getting burned. Oh it's like my so God. Gnarly. It's horrible. It's horrible. So I, 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 and and I, I, I do love that, that realizing he's becoming Darth Vader was like a twist for, for you. Because, I, because that must have been, you know, for a lot of people wa watching the, the prequels, that must have been like, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting how that can play as a twist for some viewers and kind of you know inevitability for others. Yeah. I mean, when I was re-watching it uh, last night, I like wrote down, I think this movie works a lot better if you don't know anything about the Star Wars universe. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like going back to Palpatine's death, like, or not death, his like scarring, um, when he gets scarred. It's like, one way to read that is, oh, they're explaining why he looks like a disheveled zombie, right. like a shriveled up zombie in the original trilogy. 
but knowing nothing, it's like, oh, this is actually like, right, right, right. It's, it's, it's freaky and just gross and well, kind of. Awesome. Which, which I will say though, that scene does kind of bring up something, and this is, I think, in some ways, the easiest complaint to have about the movie, like the explaining of things that don't need explaining, which has mm-hmm. become so central to a lot of Star Wars prequel lore. Um, which always like brings me back to though, the kind of throwaway moment right at the end, when Yoda's just like, by the way, Obi Wan. Um, do some more training, because it turns out that people can return from the netherworld of the Force. <laughs> and it's just an interesting moment because, like, you know, at least I had never really thought that much about the Force ghosts in the pre. You know, it just seemed like, well, that's you know, if you're a Jedi, you can kind of appear and you're a ghost, and that's fine. But it's not like you're. It's not like you're doing anything to do that. It's just kind of part of the mysticism. So, but but the idea that actually the Jedi had to develop that skill set, and again, the idea that there is a netherworld of the Force. It's it's a lot to take in, kind of all at once, and uh, I don't think it necessarily works to the movie's credit. The other obvious, um, uh, um, <laughs> the, other, the other obvious thing here is like we finally see Alderaan, and it looks really nice, and you're like, oh, but that planet is gonna get blown up <laughs> in like 20 years. <laughs> Which again, I think that's the weird power of this movie is like I'm not sure George Lucas really thought he was making a deeply disturbing movie, <laughs> but like the main character of the movie kills lots of kids. Yes. He kills. He. I mean, he. He and his colleagues kill an act, an, a, a, a character played by George Lucas's son. Like it's just so fascinating in, in a way. Um, I. I, th- I think that's why this one kind of like lives and breathes for me in a way that some of the others don't necessarily. Um, James, uh, we, we. You mentioned this a, a, a little bit earlier, but the fact that we are going to see a Palpatine in some respect in Skywalker has been a big sort of mystery going into this movie. And I have to say, like. I was skeptical about it just because it does seem like, you know, the last Star Wars movie killed the fake em- emperor, so now let's bring back the real one. But I- I'm excited just because I do love the actors so much and the mm-hmm. performance so much. So just echoing what you were saying earlier, like I am kind of really intrigued to see in what capacity he is back now. Um, is, is that kind of your, your your feeling now too? That like whatever gets us more Ian McDiarmid is probably a, a good thing. Yeah, I mean it's like sort of the more of a physical form he takes the less believable it is, yet that's what I want. It's like, if, if he's like back and just looks like a guy again, I'm like, fine, you know, <laughs> just say you, you, you say whatever space logic you, you, you want to say and I'll do it and, and, and I'm good with it. I'm curious, I mean, again, so I've been like, with the research movies, with the research stuff, stars movies, I've been trying to not read anything and just go into them knowing nothing. That's right, call. Which, I don't do for anything. I'm sure why, because I really don't care about spoilers at all. But I feel like anyway. But I'm I'm still curious. But like, because we know that he's back. But like, to what extent? And so like like the like this like, I'm curious if this is going to be end up being like a one two scene thing, right. you know? Or like, is it actually going to be that big of a deal? It, it's it's sort of unclear to me. And I will say, I, I, I was just rewatching The Force Awakens and remembering that the shot in Force Awakens where you see Luke's robo hand on R2-D2 was like one of the most talked about things in the Force Awakens trailer. <laughs> and that, that's basically the only time you see, <laughs> until the very end, that's the only time you see either of those characters in the movie. So yeah, I, I wonder about that myself, Chance. 
Um, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, to what extent he's in it. I'm, I'm down for anything. I'm down if it turns out that there was actually a good Palpatine, like twin. Like, you know, he's just like, oh yeah, like I've been hanging out on, on Naboo, where I'm from, by the way. Don't anybody ever forget that I came from Naboo, where all bad things come from. Um, Frank so, Palpatine. Yeah, thanks, thanks Palpatine. Um, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Star Wars Untold Stories. Come back next week when we'll be talking to our pal Devin Kogan all about Star Wars The Last Jedi, a not controversial movie at all. Uh, thanks, as always, to my good pal James Hibbard and my, my, my other good pal Chancellor Agard, who will hopefully be rejoining us in a couple of weeks to talk about Rise of Skywalker when it's out in theaters. Uh, I'm Darren Franich. If you enjoy what you've listened to, you can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Chance, on Twitter you are? At Chancellor Agard. At Chancellor Agard. Uh, if you like what you hear, uh, give us a rate, give us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from you. A lot to talk about to do with Star Wars this month. Uh, and until next week, I have spoken. 